Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this is your host, Jerry Wan. And before we get to our conversation with Yure Moon today, who's a former Teach for America fellow and a current professor of English at Montgomery College, I want to invite you to share with me through whatever means, Instagram, DM, email, or Facebook, things that you are getting excited for as we approach Asian Pacific American Heritage Month later this week. Uh, share with me products from Asian American business owners and inventors you'd like the world to know about. Share with me books written for adults and children by and for Asian Americans. Uh, share with me your other favorite Asian American podcasts. We'd love to feature them throughout the month of May through the Dear Asian Americans channel, as well as some other things that I'm working on. So please let me know. Uh, hit me in the comments of the Facebook post, the Instagram post, or in the inbox. Thanks so much. And here now is my conversation with Yure. Welcome, everybody, to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. Uh, wherever you are in the world today, and whenever you may be listening to this, I hope you are staying safe. I hope you are staying healthy. I hope you washed your hands before you listen to this podcast. And I don't know what the world is going to be like whenever you, uh, when you are listening to this, but um, one thing's for sure, that none of us uh, have seen anything like this before. And the other fact is that we will get through it together and we will try our best as a society to get back to normal things and to have uh, conversations and relationships and activities together. Um, my guest today is an educator through and through. Um, she is from the Maryland area, um, dedicated a part of her life to teaching youth out here in Los Angeles, very close to where I am today. And she has decided to focus her career in teaching students at the community college level, which I find extremely fascinating. And I think it's a career path that we don't often hear about. And I wanted to get some insights on how are those students feeling? Uh, we her have heard so much about the four-year dorm life schools going back to, you know, closing down their campuses and people going back home and, and how that shifted. And to be frank, I haven't really heard too much about what about our local students, um, the ones that actually work and go to school and without their incomes, what are they doing with their days and how are they managing? So uh, such a pleasure uh, to have my guest, uh, Yure Moon, on the show today. Yure, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an interesting year. Um, obviously, when we talk about industries that have been impacted greatly, um, we talk about economics first, but of course, we've heard so much about schools being impacted. Um, and fortunately or unfortunately, or just the way that the United States uh, educational system is designed and built, um, there's no, you know, um, Betsy DeVos, she probably wouldn't have anyway, but does not have the authority to say all schools are canceled or all schools are going virtual. So the decisions were made at a very, very local and, you know, um, I guess, community-based level to, to help deal with and, and to uh, really put public safety at, at the forefront of it. Um, as we speak now in the middle of April, um, some schools or some state schools have not, um, which is frightening from where I sit. But um, so I'm excited to talk to you about all that and more in your journey through um, higher education yourself and then to teaching um, here in Los Angeles and whatnot, um, which wants me to, or which I guess brings me to the front or the first earlier chapters of Yure's story in life. Um, tell us about the Moon family's journey from Korea to America. Um, how did that happen? When did that happen? And um, share with me a little bit about your earlier years of life. Sure. So my story and my family's story is, is quite unconventional when you think about the stereotypical East Asian families immigration story to the U.S. Um, my parents uh, both were educated at Seogang University in, in Korea, in Seoul, and they met there in the art club. Um, my dad was the president of the art club, and my mom was interested in submitting a piece to the student art show. So they met there um, and started dating and then moved to the U.S. for graduate school. Um, and so they, they had both had a solid education. They came here to further their studies. My mom was interested in English literature and journalism, and my dad was interested in pursuing his master's of fine arts. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I think about my peers coming from the Asian American community growing up, I didn't see a lot of families that had 
careers like my parents did. And my, my maternal grandmother was also an artist. Um, and so um, I, I always felt a little bit different from, um, you know, the very few Korean American classmates that I had and other Asians in the community. Um, but my, you know, like I said, my parents came to pursue their degrees and um, ended up you know, starting their family here. And my brother and I were born in the DC area. And, um, you know, although they were educated, my dad started with some really low paying jobs. He started as a bus boy. Um, and another job that he had was just kind of doing some housework for an older woman. And he tells stories about like having to wash her underwear and cleaning her house and, um, you know, struggling with English. And when he worked as a bus boy in a restaurant, um, he tells us one story about cleaning up the table and the tip that was left for the waiter got stuck to the bottom of a wet plate. So he, when he went to carry the stuff away, it looked like he was stealing the tip and he didn't have enough English skills to be able to explain and defend himself. And so, um, you know, while we do have stories like that in our family about the struggle that happened when my parents first arrived, um, uh, I think that the the career paths that they took were, were quite um, unique uh, for the Korean American community, especially in the area that I lived in and grew up in. Um, so my dad is currently a, um, a tenured professor at Georgetown University. He teaches art there. My mom teaches art at the community college where I teach. So we're colleagues. We go to faculty meetings together, which is so much fun. Um, and, you know, and so I grew up in a family, um, in a household where it was good and it was right and it was normal to pursue whatever your heart desired. Um, and, and I hear all these stories, you know, from my peers and others about um, pressure to pursue a particular path, um, you know, the, the conventional careers. <laughs> medicine or in law or, you know, even teaching, but um, not so much in art, I think. And, um, and so I feel very fortunate that that was my experience. Um, and at the same time, you know, although I felt that that was a, a gift, I, I recognized very early on that that was unusual and it was a blessing to be able to have um, that kind of upbringing. Um, it, I was also very isolated as a young person. I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, and we had very few Asian Americans or other people of color in our community, um, uh, mostly white community, a lot of Jewish families. I went to a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs. Um, <laughs> in seventh grade and didn't really get to tap into my Asian American um, identity and culture until high school when I met other Korean Americans from the local middle schools that all joined together in our high school. And I realized for the first time, oh, there, there are more people who look like me and more people who sound like my families. And it became cool all of a sudden to listen to like HOT, which is probably young, young people now don't, you know, all they know is BTS and the, the newer groups, but um, it became cool to listen to Korean pop music. Um, it became cool to watch the dramas and, um, you know, eat Korean food together and, and hang out together and have a little bit of a click. And so I think that's when things really started to change for me in terms of um, being excited about my identity. And then in college, I just, I went all out. I was president of the Korean Student Association. Ooh, me I, too. Yes. <laughs> and so was my brother. So, you know, like we really embraced <laughs> that that part of ourselves in college um and I was parts of uh, lots of different student groups you know I I was involved with the African Student Association and the Filipino groups and all kinds of things and I danced in the South Asian um cultural showcase show every year but um you know that's where I really became passionate about exposing my community at Georgetown to um to my culture and um you know we sold Korean lunch boxes with bulgogi mm. and rice and kimbap and kimchi uh, every Wednesday in the middle of campus and, and really got people excited about Korean culture. Um, so it was quite a journey, but you know, in terms of my family, I, I, I would have to say it was, it was I, I know even today that we're quite unusual um, when you talk about the Korean immigrant experience. You know, I go, going back to your, your father who, was an art student and now is a tenured art professor at one of the best colleges in the country around the world. And 
that middle chapter probably is something that most of his colleagues or friends or anybody really knows about. Um, and it's something that I think most of us don't ever get a chance to do, at least in your situation, your father was able to continue what he started um, as, as if mine. So um, we are blessed in a way, um, but we are few for sure. And so I challenge and I encourage if you're listening and you know your parents as a business owner or an entrepreneur or something, um, ask them when it feels right and feels okay, like, what did you study? Mm-hmm. What, what did you want to be? Mm-hmm. Had you not moved here, what, what do you imagine yourself to be doing in Vietnam, China, wherever home is for them? Mm-hmm. It's a conversation we don't have enough of. Um, does it change anything? No. Um, but we don't, you know, it's, I, I don't know when we're going to air this episode, but I'm in the middle of reading this book um, called Mistranslations um, by a New York Times uh, writer and um, Sam the Comedian, Sopan Deb. And it's about him at the age of 30, refinding his parents and having all these conversations that he never got to have. And it's really got me thinking about even, you know, out of the desire to quote unquote protect us um, as immigrant kids, our parents really left out chunks of history, um, particularly if the journey story wasn't pleasant or particularly if the um, stories back home, whether it's at our grandparents or our parents level, uh, was not something you know worth sharing. Um, but I think it helps us frame why all of this happened and um, what the motivation was to immigrate in the first place. So, you know, when, when you shared your story about your father and the dishwashing story, geez, you know, it's... Um, it's not, it's an everyday story, right? And I think you hear stories like that and um, you see people who still have those jobs today and it's a necessary uh, gentle reminder that everybody has a story yeah. and that you don't ever judge somebody by what they're doing in that moment 100%. because I'm sure people were not nice to him as the guy who didn't speak English and was the foreigner but holy shit, if they knew who he is today, they might feel a little bit differently. And not that because not because he became who he is today by title, but because he is a father and he's a son and and all those things. Um, thank you. I, I think it's it's wild. Um, you know, shout out to all the other KSA presidents across the world. Um, we we. Uh, partook in the, the highest levels of social gatherings. And um, I, I am probably responsible for starting a lot of bad habits in a lot of people. But, you know, some, some of those people that I did that with are, are still um, closest to me in my life. And, um, you know, um, we too at USC, uh, this was before, like we got in so much trouble, but, um, you know, we just straight up like, had an open flame grill in the middle of campus with, you know, no running water, no, whatever, you know, food safety guidelines we broke, right? Like straight up 20 pounds of bulgogi in a foam ice tray and be like, all right, five bucks a plate, who wants it? And we had lines and the school people came and like, what are you guys doing? We're like selling food. And like, you can't do that. So like, this is what um, the people want. Well, this is what the people want. And this was like, you know, this was 2001, 2002, like way before like Korean food or anything became like super popular. I can't imagine the lines around the block if you did that now. And um, I mean, certainly can't sell it for five bucks and, and make any, you know, fundraise any any amount of money right now. But um, man, that, that takes me back. Um, so <laughs> you grew up in that, we will, uh, we stay open-minded and the pursuit of anything you want to do in a family of uh, two artists and really the pursuit of creativity and expression. Mm-hmm. Um, you then went to go to Teach for America yeah. and came down here to a very underserved part of Los Angeles. Yes. Um, share with us first what were the... Um, conditions leading up to you deciding to do that. And uh, for folks who are not as familiar about the TFA process, did you want to come to LA? Was it a match process? And um, share with us a little bit about your life here in LA during the first couple of years after college. Sure. So 
I think when I got to college, um, especially going to a Jesuit school where, you know, our motto is men and women for others and we're all about social justice. And um, I was friends with Jesuit priests and we had conversations over lunch and we did retreats and um, we're it, was, it was constantly a part of the rhetoric in, in my undergrad experience to um, be a servant for others. Um, and so that seed was planted very early on. And as soon as I got to Georgetown, I joined a program called DC Reads that um, basically bust Georgetown students into inner city schools and uh, gave us the opportunity to work with some of the students. And so I was paired up with kindergartners and first graders and I was a 17 year old kid, had zero experience or exposure to anything outside of my middle-class privileged world. Um, and all of a sudden working with students in communities that were extremely impoverished um, and students were very behind. I mean, even in kindergarten, you know, they, it's the beginning of literacy, right? Is happening at that age, but but already it was very clear that the students needed a lot of additional support, and they needed to, to do a lot of work to catch up. Um, but I was immediately drawn to that opportunity, and um, I think it really lit a fire in me and showed me that, you know, if I have a heart for folks who are underrepresented, underserved, folks who are struggling. Um, and I, I started to learn a little bit more about the achievement gap, um, that this is something that I should really pursue. And so um, everything I did throughout undergrad was, you know, I, I became a little bit of a vigilante, I must say, right? Like I participated in hunger strikes when we found out that <laughs> our facilities workers were not getting paid enough, right? Just barely making minimum wage. Um, a bunch of students got together and I, I said to the KSA, this, this is our project too, right? Um, you know, stand in solidarity with, with these people who serve us and clean our bathrooms and make sure our dorms are safe and we have everything we need in our classrooms. Um, and so I, I really became this like social justice warrior, I think, through the influences that I had in college. Um, and my senior year, I took a human rights class. It was cross-listed between English. I was an English major and law classes. And our professor, Dr. Daniel Porterfield, this is a phenomenal human being, um, he would teach us about human rights and we would read these texts. And then he would ask us, what are you going to do to actually implement what you're learning about human rights? And how are you going to change the world? He would charge us with, with doing something, right? Taking action. And part of his um, part of his his way of his methodology of of getting us inspired was bringing Teach for America alums mm. who had graduated from Georgetown and also applied to the program to come in and speak to us and talk talk to us about the inequities in the educational system. And so um, you know, spring semester of my senior year came around. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, the deadline to apply for Teach for America was like February fourteenth at midnight it was like you know uh, pacific standard time midnight so at 2:59, i'm sitting there like finishing the application like i guess i'll submit this and i submitted and i you know i i somehow got into the program it, it's very very uh selective and a, um it, it's become such an exclusive almost process in terms of admissions today but you know, back in, in 2005, it, it was still a, a rigorous process. The interview was you know, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And, and they're very careful about the students uh, that they, they select to be a part of this program. Um, but, but it's even more rigorous today in terms of the selection process. Um, so, so I was surprised that I, that I um, was asked to come and interview and that I had the opportunity to, to teach. Um, and in terms of ending up in LA, we, you know, we had options. You can select your first, second, third, all the way down to, I think, like 20th choice. Mm. Um, and my parents were really encouraging. They said, you've been on the East Coast your whole life. You've grown up in the D.C. area. Go go wherever you want to go and go far away if you want to and go see what else is out there. Um, you know, pop that little bubble that you've been living in mm. and be exposed to other communities. And they were very supportive of me um, doing the work that I wanted to do. Um, and just to explain a little bit about the programs, I know that you had asked for folks who are not familiar, it's a, it's a two-year commitment. Teach for America is housed under AmeriCorps, um, and typically the program selects high-achieving college students um, for the vast majority of um, the core members. There are some folks who are pursuing second careers and, and actually join Teach for America, but for the most part, they're young 
adults who are fired up about making a change in the education system. And even if you do not want to pursue education um, as a, a long-term career, a lot of folks uh, end up joining the program so that they can really witness firsthand what the inequities are and um, take their, their passion for justice and their excitement about you know, making a small little dent in, in the really broken system um, and, and going into classrooms for two years to to try to have an impact. Um, we've and the program has gotten a lot of criticism because it's only a two year program. There's a lot of turnover, but there, you know, I have friends who I met in 2005 who've stayed in the same schools that they were placed in their first year. And I have friends who have become principals. I have friends who have started their own schools in the inner city or in rural areas. Um, and so I felt very fortunate to be a part of this program um, and had my eyes opened when I moved out to Los Angeles, you know, East Coast girl, anxious, uptight, moving out to, to LA. It was, it was quite the experience and, and I enjoyed it very much, but I also um, was really, really disheartened with how broken the system was. Um, witnessing that firsthand, seeing my students, uh, you know, have bl low blood sugar levels and not be able to focus in the morning because they hadn't eaten since lunch the day before when they got free meals at school. Um, you know, students hiding in my classroom because they knew that they were gonna get jumped on the way home because I taught seventh grade and that was the prime recruiting age for gangs. And so I had a lot of students say, Ms. Moon, can I, can I hide in your classroom until I know that this passes? We had lockdowns because there were gunmen running through the campus. Um, you know, just a lot of gang activity, a lot of poverty, a lot of um, racial tension yeah. in the African-American and Latino communities. Um, and, and these beautiful, beautiful young people who came to class every day and just craved stability, craved unconditional love. And, you know, some of them, some of them ended up doing great. Some of them graduated from middle school and high school and went through the UC system and now have jobs and families and, it's such a joy and an honor to have been a small little part of their journey. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I ended up with, you know, starting my teaching career. I did not know I was going to stay in teaching, but here I am many years later, still doing the thing. I mean, first, thank you for doing that. I think even, uh, I mean, I, I lived in various places across the world, but LA is home for me. And um, the part of town that you taught in, which is Watts, it's really a place that 99% of people just drive through the freeway and don't even know that it's there. Um, we associate it with a lot of negative events that happen based on what makes the headlines and what's happened in history books. Yeah. Um, but for you to actually do something, and I, I don't know if you actually knew the history and the conditions and the danger that you are um, putting yourself in because it's, you know, um, it's still a part of town that during certain parts of the day that is not advised to go in. Right. Yeah. So it's, um, it's real. Um, it's, it's something that it's not just a TV thing. It's an actual real problem. And uh, particularly uh, students in that very impressionable age. Um, it's really, really disheartening to hear. Um, so you, I guess, up until that point of coming out to Los Angeles, you obviously lived with your family through high school. Then you went to the school where your father taught, which, <laughs> sure, you didn't see him every day, but, you know. Well, I mean, I, I definitely tried to separate myself and my sure. college. There were times when he would, you know, call me up and say, I put $20 in <laughs> a lunchbox in your art locker. You know? um, and, you know, my parents would every once in a while knock on the door unannounced. So, um, yeah, I didn't see him every day, but enough to enough to still keep the, the bond, you know. So tell, tell me a few stories of you, you coming out to L.A. because for, for most folks, uh, going to college away is sort of your first experience of truly being independent um in a different zip code or even a different country sure. um but for you that was delayed a little bit until you had not only a 
sort of a career change, but a massive, massive environmental change in your surroundings, but also in your what you did day to day. Did you uh, live in the community where you taught? And what other things about Los Angeles helped you sort of make sense of who I was and who I am experiencing today and what you wanted to be after, after Teach for America? Yeah, so I, I didn't live in the community that I taught. Um, uh, you know, almost all of the 300 plus core members that were out in Los Angeles, which it was the second largest core after New York, um, did not live directly in the areas where we were teaching, which, you know, in itself, it's in one way that was the safest way to exist. And on the other hand, um, it's it's problematic, right? There are students are not seeing people in their classrooms teaching them who always look like them and are part of their community so um anyway that's sort of a tangent there um but uh, my life was you know to answer your question it was, it was very different living out in la and and dedicating basically most of my um my life to thinking about my students or lesson planning or grading their papers or calling home to make sure that they were okay or calling home to say you know your son cursed me out today in class or whatever it is um i i was so as many of my peers were incredibly invested in um in my students doing well and so in that sense my life changed radically um it was interesting to be one of the few Asian teachers in the school, um, mostly Latino students, um, some African American students, and I think besides one Vietnamese American teacher, um, and then my second year, uh, we had another Korean American teacher who was actually a, a childhood friend of mine, somehow end up out there, and then a, um, a Chinese American teacher as well. But it, it was a staff of maybe, um, I don't know, maybe like 60 to 70 faculty and staff, a huge school, 1600 students. Um, so to be just, you know, between one and three Asian American teachers, I think um, it, it, it was an interesting experience for my students because some of them had never met an Asian person before, right? Um, and so I was often called Chinese. Um, I was asked, you know, can, can you show me how to write my name in Chinese? Um, you know, I, I had students ask me, Miss Moon, don't you think it's weird that you're Chinese and you're teaching us English? Um, and so, um, you know, over time, they really <laughs> learned a lot about my culture. Um, you know, I, we talked about Korean culture. We, I taught them Korean phrases. I taught them how to write their names in Korean. And, um, you know, and I exposed them to Asian American literature, right? Um, so you know, one of the first short stories that we read in our short story unit was um, Two Kinds by Amy Tan. It's a, it's a chapter out of her novel, The Joy Luck Club. And that's a, that's a book that I grew up with because my mom is an avid reader and she always loved Amy Tan. Um, but my students had never heard of her. They'd never read anything written by anybody like that before. Um, they had never learned about Chinese history or um, about, you know, bound feet. We talked a lot about how women used to have their feet bound. Um, and I actually have extraordinarily, like, freakishly small feet. And so they were like, Miss Moon, is that what happened to you? <laughs> they bind your feet. <laughs> Are you okay? Um, and so I felt so privileged to be the person to expo expose my students um, to a culture outside of their own and to be someone who um, allowed them to ask these questions and, and have these conversations that I thought were so important. Um, and so it, you know, it was not only an experience for me and, and, you know, a resume builder and all that kind of stuff. It, it was such a gift. It was such a gift to meet my students and to be a part of their lives. I think what you did, though, which is something that a lot of us uh, do, which is or just fall into, is this sort of being the the ambassador for, yeah, like for a whole damn continent sometimes, right? Like because we we come across people for whom that's their only or first encounter. Mm -hmm. I think then there are a number of ways to react to that situation or that gift. And I think the way you did it, which is to share your story and to take the opportunity 
because there certainly are a lot of other teachers in your shoes where it's like, doesn't matter what I look like, I'm here to teach you English, sit down and read, right? Mm -hmm. Or I don't know if it's appropriate for me to bring in me into the classroom, you know, because you have guidelines and syllabus and, you know, and it certainly happens more, I think, in the workplace where we choose not to uh, lean in or to uh, really have us shine for the way we look and the way in the lives that we live and, and then just have our merits or, you know, our, our paper um, versions of ourselves really, really speak volumes to that. So it is very, very cool to hear you uh, share stories of at least giving those students a very positive first experience of people that look like me and you because their first non-human experience was probably media. And we know, unfortunately, very too well of the typecasted stereotype figures and the accent play and all the negative things that um, Hollywood and other people really love to make money off of. Um, so I, I think that's cool. And I think there are countless other people in your shoes that go into that, um, go into that work too, because it's tiring. It's exhausting. Um, you know, a little bit about me, not too far from where your school was. Um, I, I have the honor of serving on the board of a charter school, which is a, um, a K through five school, um, called the Glob global education collaborative. And there too, it is a 95% Latino population. Um, the students more are, are more diverse. It's a smaller staff. Um, but there we have English Korean immersion program. Mm -hmm. And then we have an English, uh, English, Spanish and English Korean immersion program, okay. which is also yeah. cool because about half the teachers are Korean. And, yeah. and so they get to not only teach the language, but also to share personal stories of, Hey, this is who I am. And this is what's important about my culture. So, um, I, I, you know, the very, the times that I get to go visit and just observe classrooms, it's crazy for those of you listening. Korea's history from war-torn to what you think of it now is crazy fast. And, um, and because we're a tiny little peninsula country, we still get geeked out when people who don't look like us speak our language and know stuff about our country. It's a very like, oh my God, like I feel so honored. Like it's, it's still crazy. And then when you see 10-year-old kids in Los Angeles, like write words in Korean and speak Korean. I, I've been in this country for 28 years, but it's still like, holy crap, that's wild, right? So um, and to, to all the teachers out there, um, uh, to Linda at GEC and, and to all the teachers on our staff, like, and to everybody else who are doing the good work of um, really not letting the syllabus or course guidelines or um, whatever thing that you're supposed to teach limit you in what your actual job is, which is to teach students how to think and to be kind and to be human. Um, really, really thank you because especially with all that's going on now. Um, who gives a crap about, the, you know, formulas and his regurgitation models of learning? It's, it's really how do you have human-to-human -human relationships and really rely on science and logic and reasoning to come to certain conclusions and, and uh, act and behave not only rationally but as human-to-human. -human. Yeah, that's super awesome um so awesome I, I almost lost my train of thought uh, yeah, that's okay. no, I, I was i wanted to say that that that's a pedagogical style that i learned through my training in teach for america um you know it, it just was highly enforced when we were preparing to go into the classroom where these young kids i mean i was a kid right i was 22 years old knew nothing about the world and all of a sudden um after five weeks of teaching summer school i was being asked to be in charge of these students' education all day long, right? Um, but, the, but the thing that was really drilled into our heads was um, being tenacious in your care for your students, going above and beyond and seeing them as human beings first, right? And really providing um, just that love and support that all human beings need in order to thrive, right? Because not all of our students were getting that at home. Um, and even if they were, you know, how empowering is it 
to be able to go to school and have the person standing in front of you all day say, I believe in you. I care about you. I see that you're not doing well sometimes. And you know, what can I do for you? And that those are practices that I still use today with my college students, 100%, especially with what's going on with the pandemic and all of us being quarantined. Um, I've, I've upped that practice because um, a lot of my students are suffering incredibly right now. And so I'm, I truly am thankful that that was, that was the way that I was trained. That was yeah. the model that we used to care for our students sure. many years ago. And, and it's still, I think it's paying off now that, that I know that that's important. So post TFA, most students or most TFA alumni, if you will, um, like as you mentioned, um, go off into other things. Um, certainly I had a lot of friends in business school who are TFA alumni and, and that's an, you know, a common exit, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, to pivot through that way. Um, you decided to stay in education. Um, you, you pivoted to a, a charter school and then to um, a, a coaching or a, um, a college program and eventually to the local community college in Rockville um, where you played a number of different roles. Um, why continue to teach and what, and then why community college? Sure. So I distinctly remember when we were being inducted into the Teach for America Los Angeles Corps, they had us raise our hands and make a vow that we would commit our entire careers to, to contributing towards closing the achievement gap. And whether that was through medicine and serving um, underprivileged communities or through law and um, working for immigrant communities or um, serving those in the you know criminal justice system who have been wrongly accused or whatever it is that you're passionate about, they had us actually raise our hands and and make that solemn swear, and so um, that's something that I did take very seriously. And I think once I experienced firsthand um, just how how terribly unjust the circumstances are for some of our students, I I could not stray away from this career path. It just, it was not something that would ever happen for me. Um, And so, as you said, I I, I stayed in the classroom for a little while longer. I moved back to DC and I worked at a public charter school there called the Seed Public Charter School, which is the only public boarding school in the entire country. Um, And then I I moved on to a nonprofit that served um, first generation college bound students. And I started a, uh, it was it was an access program to help students get into college, but then I founded the program that received the students and supported them once they got there. Um, that nonprofit is called College Tracks. Mm-hmm. And then I decided I, I wanted to go back to the classroom. So I went back to school. I went back to Georgetown for my master's in English so that I could teach at the community college level. And I was very, very specific about not ending up in the ivory tower because um, Although I went to a school that looks like that, um, I I also understand that those students are going to be fine. They will always have quality educators. They will always have a system that roots for them. Um, My students at the community college don't always have the odds working for them, the odds in their favor. I, I have many, many students who, um, you know, English is not their first language. I have many students who are, who are the first in their family to go to college and they don't have a support system at home. Um, I have many students who are working long, long hours or raising children or caring for their parents or living by themselves, right? And they're 18 years old and they have no, no support system. Um, and, and this is where I will stay. I will stay here forever um, because not only do I feel like my students uh, need dynamic educators who are incredibly passionate about their success and their well-being, but I get so much out of being around these human beings who are resilient and smart and beautiful, and um, they are breaking their backs to get this degree to change the trajectory of their, you know, the future generations and their family. Um, and I, w- I want to be around these people forever. I don't want to do anything else. Very honorable. I think we, in, in a world of high achievers who continue to measure ourselves by the next shiny toy rubric and feeling 
inadequate if we don't continue to go up the same ladder that um, society, family, friends, whoever have told us to climb. Um, it's challenging uh, to, it's difficult to pause um, socially, emotionally, and mentally to pause and to say, okay, is this what I want to keep going? I think I'll, um, and, and to, to no fault of their own individually, it's a societal challenge that we go through, but, you know, with blinders on, you know, um, to the next promotion, to the next degree, to the next thing. And, you know, um, I need that big city and the big job because it validates something. Um, it is exciting and encouraging and uplifting to see folks like you who do have the right logos on their resume. And then to say, cool, now I'm going to go use it for the people who don't have the same opportunity. And, and that I think is, we see a lot of it. Um, we can see more of it out there in the universe for sure. Um, but it is something that I think, you know, um, we've been given a gift. And, and so how do you want to spend that gift? And really, at the end of the day, enriching yourself, not, that's not gift. Um, or, you know, helping other people make more money when they already have more money. That's really like, you know, um, so let, let's talk about those students. Let, let's talk about the last, um, last, geez, it, it seems like three years. I almost said three years, the last three weeks. Um, yeah. uh, how has life changed at Montgomery College? How is life different for the local commuting community college student base? As I mentioned at the top of the interview, we hear so much about the four year, um, you know, brand name logo colleges that are shutting down. And of course they make the big news when, you know, Harvard and other schools close and it's like, wow. But I actually haven't heard anything in the news about, and, you know, and then on the flip side, you hear the elementary schools closing, LAUSD closes down, NYCB. We don't hear the middle. We don't, we don't hear the community college student base. Um, what have you seen your, your students go through and as you communicate with them now from the perspective of a professor, sure. what are you hearing? And for those of us listening, like what, what can we do? Sure. Really good questions. Thank you so much for asking. Um, so unlike students who are living on campus at the four-year schools um, and, you know, have returned home and many of them are with their families now, you know, my students are all commuter students. We don't have any dorms at the community college. Um, and so, in terms of you know consistency of home life routine you know they're they're where they originally were um and i'm really thankful that many of them live in this area some of my students are not from here though and so i have a student who is from vietnam i did not hear from her for several weeks and i was texting her i was emailing her she wasn't showing up to class wasn't handing in her assignments um and finally i heard from her yesterday she said that as soon as the pandemic got bad, her mom put her on a plane, flew her back to Vietnam, where she was immediately placed in a quarantine camp for two weeks because she had come straight from the United States. And she was only allowed one phone call a day to her mom. She had no internet access. And her main concern was, what is Professor Moon going to think of me? As soon as she got home, and, and I'm not the type of professor, like I'm, I'm not a hard ass in the sense that like, Yes, I have expectations and I hold my students accountable, but my students all know if something is going on with you, you just talk to me and I will help you figure it out, right? I understand life stuff happens. But she was worried that I would think that she had just completely dropped out of the class or didn't care anymore. And she emailed me and said, I just got out of this quarantine camp. And do you think I can catch up? And so um, when I think about the students who are not from here, their families aren't here, um, and how much they struggle um, during the current situation. I have another student who's from Mali who, um, in Africa, and she's living here by herself, and she's 18 years old. And so my main question for her every time I talk to her is, do you have groceries? Do you, are you, do you know where to go? Do you have enough funds and enough you know, support? Do you feel okay living in complete isolation right now? Um, so, so those are the questions that I'm asking of my students these days. I'm definitely upping the level of personal care that I provide um, because 
many of them are doing great. Many of them continue to thrive and they have regular internet access and computers and they have families who are caring for them and they don't have to work and, and they're fine. But many of my students don't have laptops right now and we've had to make um, special requests to our foundation to get them emergency funds to, to access a laptop. Some of them are writing their essays, like their five to six page papers on their phones, on their notes app, you know? Um, I have students who work at Costco, I have students who work at Target, they work at, um, you know, grocery store, they work at Domino's and they have to work these like 12 hour shifts because those industries are still going and, and really aren't, aren't they, in addition to our, our healthcare workers, aren't they our heroes today? You know, just really making sure that we have continuity of some kind of normalcy and, and access to the things that we need. Um, and then I have students who are totally out of jobs and they're struggling. They're really, really struggling. Um, and, you know, a lot of times my students are bringing in income to support the rest of their family. And if you're working in retail or, you know, working in the restaurant industry, it's, it's, it's really, really challenging for them right now. So um, I try to check in as often as I can with them. I have lots of office hours and, and they understand that my kids will be there, right? They, they are all very used to seeing my little ones on the screen now and have a lot of grace with me. And I tell them, just, just as patient as you are with me when my, my kiddos are screaming and wanting to sit on my lap when I'm teaching class and they're here during office hours asking me, what am I doing? Um, I, I also try to have the same grace with them and understand if their papers aren't getting submitted on time, it could be something more than just their being lazy. Most of the time, it's something else that's impeding their ability to submit assignments on time or show up to my online class. And so I try to be mindful of that and, you know, think about like psychology 101, the Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, if, if they're not eating, they're not feeling safe, they're feeling anxious. A lot of them have health conditions and they're feeling very, very nervous about getting sick right now. Um, that I need to address those needs first, right? I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm, I'm not a social worker, but as somebody they trust and someone who already has a relationship with them, um, they might be more likely to come to me than somebody that they don't know. And I might be able to point them to a resource that's available through the college or through the county um, and help them out a little bit. That um, To me, that's way more important than are you going to format your quotations in MLA format properly? You know, um, right now, every, everyone just needs to be okay. And many of them have said too, is that some instructors are choosing not to do the synchronous online classes where they're holding their class at the same time as the face-to-face -face class originally met. I'm choosing to do that because my students have told me it brings them a sense of stability and normalcy and that they like the structure. And if they don't have that, they've got nothing else going on in the day. They're home all day long, some of them. And so I'm, I'm choosing to do that. It's really hard to do that with everybody at home and homeschooling. And, you know, I've, I've got a six month old who needs bottles made and he cries and all that kind of stuff. But it's important for me to, to have that sense of continuity established for them. You mentioned you're not a doctor, you're not a psychiatrist, but you know, you, you don't need a degree or a license to care. And you, you certainly don't need one to be a human being. And I think it's a important lesson it's an important lesson it's a necessary reminder that uh you don't it doesn't really matter what you do what your job title says um to to care and to ask how somebody's doing um i i do believe that the overwhelming majority of people are responding well but far too often we hear stories of um, professors from their ivory towers from the comfort of their very large home with all the means in the world, getting upset that, you know, students are not doing the same. Yeah, and nobody has a right to, to be upset right now. I of mean, course, it, it but makes, we hear it too often. We do, we do hear it. And it um, it makes me quite infuriated that we, we forget that we're working with human beings, right? Sure. And the whole point of going into education from my perspective is so that you can better your society by caring for another individual who's going to eventually impact society for the better, right? We're, we're feeding them knowledge so that they can do something with it, not just regurgitate it back to you, like you said earlier. Um, so it really makes me passionately upset when, um, when people, you know, are, are disappointed with their students for not performing the way that they would otherwise sure. when 
circumstances were normal. Um, they're, they're going through just like we are, right? Everybody is suffering to some yeah. extent, but they're going through so much, truly. And, and recently this week, I read, also read on the flip side of schools treating professors as these robotic workhorses for whom we pay you enough. So just shut up and teach your class on Zoom and how dare you, you know, because people are going through their own stuff too, you know? It, it, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter, you know, somebody might have somebody who's sick or they have their own grown children at home or their spouse. You don't know. And as, as unfortunate and as uh, infuriating as it is to hear these stories, both from academic environments and corporate environments where um, people are just either willfully or just stupidly ignoring the realities of emotional and, and mental health right now um it's very very cool to hear um at least you as as a uh, one person who can control the way she teaches and the way she cares for her students that you're, you're doing the right thing um a lot of our, our listeners are, are students and um at least i think they are if you're not a student sorry um <laughs> I hope they are. <laughs> I, I hope they are. Uh, but but share with the audience of students um, something to encourage them because everybody's going through a lot of stuff right now. Yeah, I would say um, you know when I was when I was in undergrad and grad school, I I had a lot of life stuff happen. Um, I'm a cancer survivor. I endured that through undergrad. And then in college, I had a family member who was very sick and I was going through, you know, just personal stuff. Um, and I felt really intimidated when I was much younger um, to, to tell my professors what I was going through because I felt like, why would they, why would they care about this stuff that I'm going through? Right. Um, especially in some of my larger classes where I felt like just a number, just a name. Um, I had no idea that they would be receptive to me coming to office hours or sending an email and saying, I am struggling right now. I am suffering right now. Is there anything that you and I can talk about um, that, that might allow me to get through this class somehow? Is there any support that you can offer me or any resource you can point me to? Um, and in grad school, I learned you know, to, to advocate for myself a little bit more. And I felt more comfortable with that. Um, and I have to tell you every single time I approached an instructor, no matter how stoic they seemed in the classroom, every time I approached an instructor personally and admitted that I was struggling, the response was always, thank you for sharing that with me. I'm sorry you're going through this life experience. Let's figure out a plan to help you get through the semester. Always, 100%. And I have to say, just knowing the, um, the attitudes and the, the teaching philosophies of my colleagues at Montgomery College, I know, you know, especially the folks that I'm close with, they would, they would say the same thing. Um, so if you are a student and you are listening and, um, and you know, that, that's one lesson that you take away from this, please know that most, if not all, of your instructors went into education because they, they care about young people. They care about young people's lives. They care about you doing well. And so if you're ever struggling either with the content, right, academically, or you're struggling with just life stuff, um, approach somebody that you feel, even if you don't feel 100% comfortable doing this, approach someone who seems the most approachable out of all of your instructors and just be candid about what you're experiencing. More times than not, they will offer tremendous care and support for you. Thank you. Um, and thank you for sharing all your stories. I, as I alluded to earlier, uh, the path that you've chosen, uh, many of our peers choose education. Um, but most of us, because we were pressured or expected to pursue more um, uh, high visibility or more achievement-oriented paths, even within given uh, specific career paths, um, don't necessarily choose a path you chose, which is putting yourself in harm's way physically, uh, choosing a path or early, you know, a stop through Teach for America. And then certainly um, you're not the only one, but there's not enough of people who then choose to stay at the, at the community level. 
Um, I think you lead through your own actions and the stories that you share. Um, so, uh, and we've heard the little one in the, in the background from time to time. So even with all that extra, thank you for making the time uh, to come in and share your story with us. And I really, really hope that, you know, somebody listening out there is um, feeling a little bit more at ease, um, whatever the heck it is that you're going through. Um, know that you're not alone. And there, there is somebody like you, right, in your life who um, will take off all the layers of teacher, professor, person who gives you a grade, your boss, and just connect with you on a, on a human-to-human level. And it may seem daunting because it is scary, um, particularly for those of us who are raised in cultural, religious, or social constructs that says you never talk to your teacher. You always respectfully say, sir, ma'am, doctor, whatever. We forget that they're human too. Yeah. And, and so always remember that, um, not just in school, forever. Um, you know, every single person that you meet, whether it is the person busting your table after you walk away or your professor, we are all human at the end of the day. Um, so, so thank you. Um, I, I want to end the show in the same way that we end all of our shows, which is going back to the name of the show. Um, the Asian Americans letter is a, a passion and a love project of mine, um, dedicated to Charlotte, my daughter, but really it is a letter to us and from us and ultimately for all of us, um, words and stories and perspectives that we need to hear a little bit more of, particularly these days, um, of people doing really badass things in the universe that look like me and you and, um, things that perhaps we never thought we could. Um, so would love for you to help us finish out the show, um, in writing a letter to the Asian Americans of the world. And so I, I will start and uh, help us finish out the show. Dear Asian Americans. You are such a beautiful part of the fabric of this country. You are wonderful. You're contributors, you're learners. You are uh, folks who allow us to live our daily lives. Um, you are essential to what makes this country wonderful. You are American simply because you are American without any conditions. Um, and I hope that you always remember that is not uh, something that you have to prove, right? That you belong here. You belong here. Um, you are appreciated. And I am very, very proud to be your Asian American sister. You touched on something that we probably should spend another two hours talking about after in a completely separate conversation. Yep. Um, so w with that, I invite you, I invite you to come back uh, whenever you want. Um, love talking to educators because I think you guys speak, um, everybody does, but particularly educators really, really, really speak from the part of your heart that just cares. Um, hell, if you wanted to make money, you do something else. Um, right. So it, it comes from a place in your heart where it's just the investment of time, energy, and just humanity is, um, at the forefront of all that you do. So, um, genuinely, genuinely, thank you. Um, thank you. big shout out and, and thank you to, uh, my brother and my friend, Tegun, um, who been my friend for 20 years. Also haven't seen him for 20 years, but we stay connected. Um, it's really funny um, of all the amazing things that have happened to me and for me throughout my podcast journey and thinking about um, who in my life, when they came in and how they have made certain introductions to bring in further human beings into my life. Um, I might have to owe Mark Zuckerberg a big royalty check if this ever makes any money because it is really things like Facebook and other networks that have kept us together and connected and uh, give us a platform to share our story. So um, Day, if you're listening, hope, hope all is well out there um, in Milwaukee and um, be well. Um, Yure, thank you. Uh, big thanks to your partner and your two little tiny people in the background um, for being patient with us. Um, it is later there in Maryland than it is here in California. Um, so be well. Uh, be safe and really thank you for being an awesome human being to your students and for everybody around you. Thank you for having me. This was such a joy. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye. That was a very fun conversation with Yure. 
especially that last part. You do not need to wear anything specifically or to have your Americanness be conditional. Be proud of who you are. We belong here. And let's help everybody live healthier lives and get through these challenging times together. If this conversation uh, struck a chord with you, if you enjoyed it, found it inspiring, please do share it with two friends through whatever social or other means that you share things with. Follow and like us on Instagram and on Facebook at The Eurasian Americans. And please do drop me a note um, if you have any comments or feedback for me. You can also find me on Instagram at jerryj1, or you can email me at jerry1 at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate every single person who tunes into this show. And until better days, let's stay strong, let's stay healthy, and let's stay vigilant. Thanks. This has been your host, Jerry Wan.